0: And uh, open them up to Psalm 96, uh, as we're going to spend some of our time together. Um, We have just finished uh, the Ephesians series where we spent 17 weeks talking about who we are in Christ and and what that life in Christ looks like. Uh, This summer we're going to be talking about what it means to follow Christ. And so uh, for the next three weeks, well two after today, uh, I want to dedicate some time just to talking about who God is, right? So uh, understanding a bit of this God that we identify ourselves with, this God who defines who we are in his son, and I really hope that as we do this that we Would just grow in our our depth of knowledge and appreciation uh, of who this wonderful and awesome God is. And so I'm uh, calling this uh, short little mini series, if you'd call it that, Awesome God, uh, just with that desire that at the end of three weeks we would just be instilled with a, a reverence and an awe of just how amazing and awesome God truly, truly is. And so I wanted to just kind of uh, throw a reflective question at you this morning uh, that you can answer and, and contemplate in your own hearts, in your own minds. And that the question is simply is this. What do you think of well, when we start talking about God? Uh, what are the thoughts that go through your head? What are the feelings that you have? What are the, 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 the things that flood your minds and your hearts as you begin to think if we talk about God? For some of us, uh, we uh, might look at this concept of God, and at times, God seems mystic. He, He seems a bit out there. He seems a bit unknowable. How do we understand his ways? He seems cryptic and confusing at times. Sometimes God may seem functionally for us like a, a bit of a genie in a bottle, right? There to kind of grant our wishes, uh, make life easier, solve our problems, bring about solutions for us. Uh, sometimes we treat God like an insurance policy to call on when we uh, find ourselves in a time of need or when we're having a bad day or, or some sort of circumstance arises in our lives. Sometimes maybe we view God kind of like a casual friend, right? The kind of friend that you know, frankly, doesn't mind being blown off every now and then because they get it. They understand what life's like. The kind of friend that doesn't uh, mind, uh, you know, nicknames and doesn't mind uh, uh, sarcastic comments and approaches, but just a good old casual friend that's there when you need them and okay when you don't. I was wrestling with this, uh, kind of looking at who God is, and wondering, and working with God, and I was wondering if perhaps we struggle at times in our spirituality today, and we find growth, or the lack of growth, not for the lack of desire to grow in our knowledge and understanding of the Lord, but for a lack of seeing God as He truly is. Perhaps our American spirituality that we find ourselves living in has become more concerned at times with the individual more concerned at times with our experience and less concerned about God and the one that we worship. Perhaps over time we have lowered our view of God so much that we've lost sight of how wonderful He truly is. His glory, His wondrous works, We've lost sight of his greatness, his splendor, his majesty, to the point that we would affirm them with our mouths, but we've lost a sense of awe and wonder in our hearts. Perhaps it's time, not just sitting in Creek, but for Christians today to sing a new song to the Lord. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to Psalm 96 with me as we're invited to sing a new song uh, to God. And as we sing this new song and understand these things and look again to the knowledge of God and address uh, perhaps our lack of sense of awe and wonder and majesty of God, uh, that A.W. Tozer has a quote that might bring this uh, to perspective for us, that if we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin to think of God more clearly as he is what can we plain christians do to bring back the departed glory and the answer might seem uh, might easily disappoint some of us first anything but profound he says i bring no esoteric cryptogram no mystic code to be painfully deciphered i appeal to no hidden law of the unconscious no occult knowledge meant only for a few the secret is an open one which the wayfaring man may read. It is simply the old and ever new counsel, acquaint thyself with God. So Psalm 96 opens calling God's people to sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. Not because God had changed in any way, shape, or form, but to sing a new song to God because His people had experienced Him in a new way. Psalm 96 is almost an exact excerpt from 1 Chronicles 16 after the Israelites defeated the Philistines and were able to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem to worship God with the Ark of the Covenant there once again. And so in its original context, as this would have been sung, this new song would have been sung, it would have been a marker of a new time of worship, a renewed sense of God's presence with his people, a renewed sense of hope in the Lord. It celebrates a mighty and powerful God who triumphed over his enemies, whose glory and might was unparalleled in the world, whose mighty deeds won wars, and who a God who communed with his people." And since these principles still apply even today, we are not celebrating the return of the Ark of the Covenant to the temple in Jerusalem, but yet we are invited in to sing a new song to God. And so I want to turn our attention to this Psalm 96 and see the celebration of this great God that we serve. So if you would, starting in verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For, the God, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name, bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns, yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity." Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. And he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, you are a holy an awesome God. Father, you are a God full of splendor and majesty. And Father, it is a privilege to come into your courts. Father, it is a blessing to gather in your name to sing praises to you, to open your word that you've given us. Father, a a blessing that even now we get to enter the throne room in the blood of Christ to come before you in prayer. Father, I pray that in the next couple of weeks as we look at just who you are, that you would renew in our hearts a sense of awe, a sense of wonder at your greatness. That we would not treat you flippantly, but that we would revere you as a holy and just God. Merciful and gracious. Supreme over all things. Ruler of all the world. May we know you more nearly as you are. Our God and our King. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at this psalm, in its totality, it becomes clear to us that before a sense of genuine worship and celebration comes, and whatever that may look like, it starts with us understanding who God is. So to steal uh, the line from A.W. Tozer, that we ought to acquaint ourselves with God. And that's exactly what the, the, the psalmist does at the beginning of this psalm. He acquaints himself with God. And so I ask you, are you ever awestruck at who God is? Like genuinely awestruck. You, you see videos online nowadays of people who are starstruck when they uh, come across a celebrity and they just lose words to speak. They're so excited, so giddy, so, so in awe of who this person is. Are you ever awestruck at the greatness of God? Or has the splendor of God become kind of dim? Maybe a little bit dull over the years. Maybe even uh, your familiarity with God. You know, I've, I've heard this talked about before. I, I, I've heard these passages. I've heard these things said. And, and it kind of becomes, okay, this is, this is repetitive. I know it. And the sense of just wonder at God it has become dull in our lives. Dull in your hearts. Over the last few years, uh, I've gotten to take a few trips out to the Rocky Mountains, one of my favorite places in the world to go see. And it's just a beautiful place out in the Rockies. And uh, while we're there, I've, I've always started to wonder, you know, because I, I get to the Rockies, you start looking around, you're like, oh, my goodness, it's, it's so beautiful. It's just marvelous, the grandeur of the mountains. And, and you start looking at it, and you're like, maybe it's because I'm from like Illinois, and it's flat, and so to see anything with some dynamic to it uh, sin, tends to bring a sense of awe to me. And so I'd start asking some of the locals, like, did it, did it ever get old? Do, do the mountains just, are they always just as great as they were when you first showed up? And the, the resounding answer is, yes, we love the mountains. They never get, oh, their, their, their splendor, their beauty never fails. We're always, they become familiar, but they're still awesome. And it's such a, a great picture because as we would go out there, I just remember taking uh, time to just take the, the landscape in. And we climbed one of the peaks in Estes Park and got to the, the tallest of one of the lower peaks. And you could just stand up there, and one of the pictures kind of shows that just looking out from that peak, and you can see so much. And I'd stand there, and you just want to soak it all up and, and, and just really take that snapshot. And so you take a picture of it, right? Because you want to come home and show your church these great pictures that other people might appreciate the awe and wonder and majesty of the Rockies. And so you throw pictures on a screen and you say, they look great, but the pictures just don't do them justice. Anybody who's been there, anybody who's done it would say, yeah, the picture's beautiful, but it's not like actually being there. It's not like actually experiencing the Rockies with your own eyes, climbing them with your own feet, exploring them with your own minds. That's different. That's wonderful. This is cool. And I wonder at times if we have become so content with looking at other people's pictures of God that we've lost the sense of the blessing that it is to experience Him ourselves. Because it's great to get to look into someone else's pictures, but it's another thing to be there. The pictures just don't do it justice. So I wonder as we talk about acquainting ourselves with God, if it's time, but maybe we need a little bit of a renewal to stop and say, okay, let's, I don't want to just look at other people's pictures anymore. I don't want to just look at snapshots. I want to experience the holiness of God. I want to know it personally. Been there. When was the last time you were left speechless before God? to just come into the throne room and not even know what to say. Not because of the circumstances of your life, but because you are caught up in just how awesome God truly is. The psalmist in Psalm 96 is quite familiar with God. Not in the sense of just knowing things about God, it's not that as we talk about acquainting ourselves with God to say, okay, go sign up for another class, do another study. It's, no, it's, it's a walk, a relationship with Him. The psalmist speaks of the, the grandeur and glory of God, His strength and His might because He's seen it, He's experienced it firsthand. It's not just regurgitating uh, some theological theory. It's not just being able to articulate something, but it is knowing God. Has it been a while? A minute? A few weeks? A month? Years? Since the perspective of who God really is flooded your heart and your mind. Sometimes we feel inadequate to speak confidently of the glory and majesty of God. Because sometimes we view it like that. Well, I don't know. I don't know all the terms. I can't remember all the Bible verses. I'm not very persuasive in my speech. I'm not very confident in my words. And we start to view God as sort of a philosophy, something just to study, something that an amount of head knowledge can articulate. Now just remind us what uh, stood out about the disciples in Acts? Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were highly educated, eloquent men, refined in their speech. They were uneducated, common men. And it astonished the world. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I wonder at times if sometimes we, we get so caught up in the arguments and the theories and we think, well, I, we need somebody with a degree to articulate the truths about God. We need a level of education. How many classes have I gone to? What's the latest podcast I've been listening to? What's the last book that I've read? If only then I could articulate the glories of God. But I wonder if we need that renewed sense of, I've been with Jesus. I know Jesus. So I can speak about Jesus. Because I've seen Him. I've interacted with Him. He's real. I don't just have to understand things. I know Him as a friend. I know Him as a God, as my Savior. I know who He is. I know what He's like. And I can speak about that. There's more about that following Him that we're going to talk about this summer. That knowing who we are in Him that we've already addressed. But then to just know God to speak of the God whom we know. You'll notice in our psalm, as the psalmist begins to do that, he invites, he invites God's people to sing to the Lord, to declare His glory among the nations, and then verse four and five, he starts to get into, well, why? He says, for, all, uh, for great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. In other words, what he's saying is that the Lord is so great, He is worthy of all the praise that we can give Him, and he compares it with all the other gods. He is to be feared above all the gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. And in the Hebrew, it's such a beautiful thing. It's this terminology, the Elohim or Elilim is the the Hebrew for it. We miss that in English. But it's beautiful. The Elohim, the gods, are Elilim of nothing. They're nothing. All the other gods, they're nothing. They're from nothing. They're of nothing. They're for nothing. But the Lord created the heavens. So not only are these other gods, they're, 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 they're nothings. Here we have everything that has been created by our God. The one true God. So where the psalmist counters the lack of substance, the lack of reality, the lack of anything on the false gods of the world, whether they be recognized by uh, religions or just the idols that we create in our own hearts and our own minds, on the other side of it, we have the supremacy of God over all things. The creator God, the almighty God. So it's my prayer for us as a church that as we talk about what does it mean to follow Christ, what does it mean to know who we are in Christ, that it would be rooted in knowing who God is. That in our hearts we would truly come to understand the supremacy of our God. That our God, the one true God, is supreme in his eternality. That he was never created, he has no beginning, he has no end. He is the definition of absolute reality. He is dependent on nobody. He exists outside the bonds of time. Our God is eternal. That we would understand the supremacy of his constancy. That in his eternality, he never changes. He is the God who was the same yesterday, today, and will be tomorrow. He is the same God that Abraham worshipped, that Isaac followed, that David sung songs to the same God that we serve and worship today, not changing. That we would know the supremacy of his knowledge, that all the wisdom of God makes every book that's ever been written by mankind look like a child's collection of books. Surpassing the wisdom and knowledge of guys like Einstein and Newton and all the, the brilliant minds of human history, they can't even begin to scrape the surface of the depths and riches of God's knowledge. That we would understand the supremacy of God's wisdom holding all things in balance with one another, executing every plan in detail according to the supremacy of His authority. That He raises up kings and kingdoms and tears them down in His time. That He sets seasons and place and times and He has authority over all things. So who can come before our God and challenge Him? Who are you? And what have you done? That we would understand the supremacy of God's providence that he knows every single hair on your head. That he knows every bird and creature and sees to it that not one living thing is outside the care and concern of our God. That we would know the supremacy of his word which upholds the universe. It spoke it into existence and now continues it on by the word of his power that if he simply stopped, all things would cease to exist. How great and mighty is our God that we would know the supremacy of His his power that opens the eyes of the blind, that heals the sick, that makes the deaf hear, the lame walk and raises the dead to life. Our God is not a worthless and of nothing idol, but that we would know the supremacy of His purity, that in Him there is no evil. There is no deceitfulness. There is no evil way. He is totally and completely good in all that He is. That we would know the supremacy of his trustworthiness. That when God says he will do something, he keeps his word each and every time. That we would know the supremacy of his patience. That God has endured you and I and our evil brothers and sisters for all these years. That he has patiently endured the wickedness of our nation, the evils of mankind. What a patient God we serve. That we would know the supremacy of God's justice. That he will settle each and every account in the end. That when Jesus is done judging his creation, not one injustice will remain. But that he will judge all of mankind with equity and with faithfulness as even Psalm 96 declares and anticipates and hopes. That we would know the supremacy of God's wrath. That will be poured out in all of its fury against all wickedness of mankind that has rejected Christ. That we would know the supremacy of His grace. That He is a God who justifies us, the wicked, the ungodly, with the righteousness of His own Son. That we would understand the supremacy of His love. That God sent His Son to take on flesh and dwell among us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a great love he has. We were made to know God, to know him as he is, to worship him in his splendor and in his majesty. So God says in Jeremiah chapter 9, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Do you know God? For When we begin to know Him as He truly is and see Him as He truly is, we begin to know just the outer limits of the wonders of our God. Because how can our feeble minds, how can our finite minds begin to wrap around the fullness of, the, of an infinite God? The fullness of His wonders, the fullness of His nature, the fullness of His attributes to really fully know Him. we will have all of eternity to continue to know more and deeper of who God truly is. We haven't even begun to talk now about the, the supremacy of his invincibility. We haven't even talked about the supremacy of God's dignity, the supremacy of God's complexity, his simplicity. We have not even begun to dive into the depths of who God truly is. I was joking with Bill earlier. He's like, what, well, you're going to take three weeks to talk about the fullness of God? No, we can't. How could we begin in three sermons to grasp the fullness of the great God that we have? We can't. He is wonderful. He is an awesome, awesome God. He is a God who is supreme over every galaxy and every corner of creation. He is a God who is supreme over all the earth, from the heights of Everest to the depths of the oceans. A God who is supreme over each and every plant and animal, from the largest of the whales in the ocean to the smallest bacteria that we can't even see with our naked eye. He is a God who is supreme over every weather over every chemical and biological process. He's supreme over every nation, every government, every war. He is supreme over all politics. He is supreme over all elections. He is supreme over all scholarship and education, every philosophy and every ideology, even those that reject him. He is supreme. He is a God who is supreme over all of humanity. He is supreme over all creation. So there is not one inch or fabric of the universe over which God does not declare his reign. He alone is God, the one who has created everything. Great is our God and greatly to be praised. Splendor, majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. How little we actually know of the glories of God. Let us not ever come to His Word or come before our God assuming that we have arrived. Assuming that we have come to fully know Him. But let us come as children eager to know more fully the greatness of our God. Show us more. Show us who you are. That as we begin to see and understand with greater depth who God really is, then we would come, as the psalmist invites us to in verse 7, to ascribe to the Lord the glory that's due His name. That then, the more we come to know this God, the more we come to perceive and know that He, who He truly is, just how marvelous, just how much splendor there is involved in this great and wonderful and awesome God, that then we would come and give Him all that glory. Giving Him all the glory that's due His name. And so uh, we see... In our psalm, a couple of words that are repeated, such as sing, such as ascribe. And both of these are are active words that we are invited into, invited to, to sing a new song to God, invited to ascribe this glory to Him. What does that mean? What does that mean to ascribe glory to God? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that as we ascribe glory to God, we actually increase His glory. He's an infinite God. He is infinitely glorious, whether we see Him as glorious or not. It also means we can't rob Him of His glory. We can't truly take away the glory of God as if He could somehow run out of glory. He is glorious. So what it means then is that as we ascribe glory to God, it's not so much our uh, actually adding to his glory, but our attributing glory to him. So it's more so that we are not robbing each other of our perception of who God truly is, that we would come to a greater sense of knowing who God is and ascribing to him to glory that we now understand is truly do his name. And I would argue that the more and the longer we walk with Christ, the longer we walk with him, the more we see him, the more we will have an awe and reverence for him. As our knowledge and understanding of how great he is increases, man, we ought to be, our lives would look different. To ascribe to him the glory that's truly due his name. To know him truly as he is. And so we have to be cautious not to look at his creation And worship that over Creator. All the splendor and marvelous beauty of the mountains pale in comparison to the glory of God. Whatever beauty we see in God's handiwork, how could that is just a picture, a glimpse into the beauty and wonder of how great God truly is. But we are prone to worship and we are prone to stray and wander. And to make much of the creation and ignore the creator, so that in Romans chapter 1, we see that that same thing happened. That people claiming to be wise became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You go down, to what happens? They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Isn't that interesting that as Paul talks about this, he doesn't say that he would be blessed forever. He says, no, God is blessed forever. Even though mankind will worship what he has created, rather than worshiping him, God is still blessed. He is still glorious. He is still great, even when we may not understand. So we ought to be cautious that we don't become fixated on the lesser at the cost of worshiping the greater, the creator who brought all things into existence by the power of his word. And so we are invited then. In verse 8, as we ascribe glory to God, it says, bring an offering and come into his courts. This offering wasn't uh, to be confused with uh, the sacrifices that were offered for cleansing or for the forgiveness of sins. This was uh, a bloodless offering and an offering truly of thanksgiving. In other words, it was an offering that was freely brought before God solely in response and respect to who God is and what God has done. There is no demand, no obligation for it, but an offering to praise a holy and glorious and awesome God. What is your offering? i don't mean this by what are you going to go and give to the church i mean it in no way to say stop at the boxes in the back i don't mean it like that but i mean what is your offering to god is your offering before god one of convenience and comfort that it works because it's worked for you what is your offering that you bring before such a great god speak of this god What does your offering convey of the greatness of God in your own heart, in your own mind? Does it show his splendor? Does it show your reverence? His worthiness? And I want to be as clear as I can because the psalmist here is not in any way obligating. He's simply inviting. So I don't come, I'm not standing here to say, yeah, you should give an offering to God. I'm saying there is a joy in worshiping God by taking whatever he has given to us and saying, you are of greater worth than my own self. You are of greater value to me than I could place on anything that you have. Because you get this, God does not need our offerings. God does not simply need the stuff that we have. He gave it to us in the first place. He is the owner of a cattle on a thousand hills. He created the entire universe into existence. Do you think that God needs what Jeremy has to offer? No, he doesn't. I need what Jeremy has to offer. I need that to remind myself of who God is and who I am in response to that. That I am not God. That I am not awesome. That I am not glorious in all of my splendor and all of my majesty, but that God is that he is so much greater than me, that he is worthy to be praised. So it's an invitation to come and to worship God. As verse 9 says, in the splendor of holiness, tremble before him, the psalmist says, all the earth, that we would fear him, that, that, to know who God truly is. What response can we have but to shrink back? And yet he pursued us. Yet he loved us with such a great love. That he has invited us into relationship with him. That he has invited us into his kingdom work. That he uses us as his instruments. And so we see this invitation down uh, in verse 10 and throughout the psalm to engage the world with the message of just how great God is so that we might announce the good news to everyone. Five times in verses 1 through 10, the earth The peoples, the nations are mentioned. Glory, God's glory, is something we get to invite others to know and to experience for themselves. John Piper uh, begins his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, saying missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. He goes on and says that worship is the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white, hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. And before we think that that simply applies to going to Uganda or going to Alaska or going to Poland or, or whatever mission trip that the church may have or being sent overseas full time, does this not entail the mission that God has sent us as his ambassadors into our own communities, into our own workplaces, that our goal in doing missions and outreach and engaging the world around us is not to just put more people in seats in a church, but to invite people into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. And when we begin to think of it this way, this announcement of God's glory, it becomes somewhat of a proclamation. We often think of evangelism as persuasion, right? How can we persuade people to place their faith and trust in Jesus? How can I persuade them with arguments and articulations? How can I persuade them with crafty words and There's a place for persuasion. But evangelism is not all persuasion. Evangelism is proclamation. To declare to the nations, to declare to the peoples our great and holy God and to invite them to worship Him. And might we add, for those who don't feel that you're very persuasive, that when the proclamation of the glory of God comes from a place of experience, doesn't it become more persuasive? That you speak of a God that you know. You speak of his splendor and his majesty that you've seen. His wisdom, his knowledge, his patience, his love, his mercy, his grace, his his justice that we, we proclaim these things from a place of conviction and experience and that becomes all the more persuasive to the world. I want to invite you guys to do something real quick. I wanna, if, you have, if you're taking notes or if you have your phone or something, I want I wanted you to get it out right now. I'm going to ask you to write down the name of one person that you might desire to announce the good news of our great and glorious God to in the next week or two. Write down one name. Right now, don't wait till later. One name.